Well, good morning to you all. It's great to see you. So welcome to those of you in this room and those in the fellowship hall and those at home uh, live streaming. It's great to be with you all. The past few seconds I was thinking, what would I rather be doing right now? Nothing. Uh, not that I'd rather be doing nothing. I mean, there's nothing other than this that I'd rather be doing. That came off wrong. Uh, there's nothing I'd rather do uh, than be with you all uh, in this time and then hear from God through His Word. So would you join me in opening your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 1? And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some in within reach, at least within this room. And those are, um, you can find in that Bible, page 986 is where you can find 1 Thessalonians 1, page 986. And if you are newer to exploring Christianity and you don't yet own a Bible, uh, grab one of these and take it with you. Um, and I encourage you to begin, begin reading it. So we're starting a new sermon series this morning, and the series is about being and making disciples. And that phrase, being and making disciples, is just lifted from our purpose statement as a church. So our purpose is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ, who are a community of worshipers on mission. So what we're going to do is take three weeks to focus together on how we live out God's purpose for us in this next year. So here are a couple of reasons why we're doing this. First of all, uh, even though a lot has changed in this past year, we need to remember that our purpose as a church has not changed. And we can still fulfill it no matter what the context is. And so, so much of what we expected 2020 to be like didn't happen, did it? In our individual lives, as a church. And so we need to come together as a church and just pause and remember why we're here and have fresh commitments to this purpose as it's lived out in all sorts of scenarios, no matter what 2021 holds. This will still be our purpose. Um, so I know that a number of you have started joining us also as, as a church this past, this last year, and so you have a sense of who we are and what we're about, but we want to invite you to fully engage and participate with us as a local church family that lives with this purpose. So as you become a member of a local church, you become a participant in the purpose of that local church, God's purpose in this world. And so we're joining together with the shared purpose to be and making, make disciples of Jesus Christ. Another reason why we need to do this for a few weeks is because we need to remember that God's purpose for our lives, not just our church, but our individual lives, your life, has not changed either. And these past 10 months have been disorienting. Maybe you feel tired uh, like the future looks foggy to you or you feel sad. And it's, we need to remember God has a purpose for you. You matter. You matter to God. And therefore, you matter to us. And so we need to remember God's purpose for us. Our lives matter. So this series is about being and making disciples. And the three key aspects of discipleship are these three words, worship, community, and mission. And so we're going to take one week on each of these aspects of what it means to be and make disciples. So discipleship as worship, discipleship in community, and discipleship on mission is where we're headed for these three weeks. So this morning, discipleship as worship. So if you're looking at 1 Thessalonians 1, we'll be reading uh, most of this chapter here in a moment. And this chapter is about how God creates disciples. 
This chapter is one of the greatest descriptions in all the Bible and therefore on the entire planet of how people actually become Christians or disciples or we could say worshipers. It's an incredible transformation. And here's what it shows us. It shows us that when God, when God creates a Christian or a disciple, what he's doing is making them into a worshiper of him. We see this worship language. Before we read the text, look at verses 9 and 10. They, they turn from worshiping idols, and now they serve God. That word serve is a word that's often used to refer to worship. And so this text exists. The purpose of this text, as far as I can gather it, is to help Christians, first those first Christians who read it, but then us today, to help us see and celebrate this reality. So Paul's writing this letter to Christians to encourage them about their transformation into worshiping disciples. So let's read the first uh, 10 verses here. We'll start in verse 2, and then we'll pray together. We give thanks to God always for all of you. So this is Paul writing to this church. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve or worship the true and the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, let's pray. And we're praying in part because even in light of this text, we saw that Paul said that they responded uh, in such a way that it was clear that the word wasn't just received, but the word came with the spirit and power. That's what we want every Sunday. Anytime we open our Bibles, we want it to be not just the word only, but with power and the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Our Father, we have read your word and will continue to read and consider your word here. And so we pray in light of this text uh, that you would bring your word and this gospel word to us not only with mere words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So we pray that you would do this. We're asking you to because we can't do it on our own. We can't do this in our hearts. We can't do this in the heart of the person sitting next to us. We can't do this in the hearts of our parents or our children or our friends. We need you by your spirit to do it. And so we're asking you to for your name's sake and for our joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we'll walk through this text and we'll answer three questions about worship, this idea of turning from idols to the living God to serve Him. Where does it come from? Where does worship come from? How does it happen? And what does it look like? So the first question 
is where does worship come from? And the answer, the short answer is this. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. It starts with Him. We don't initiate worship. God does. We only seek God because He first seeks us. We see this in two ways in verses 2 through 4. First, we see it in the thankfulness of Paul. Do you notice what Paul is thanking God for in verses 2 and 3? Let's look at this again. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul's doing here is what he does in a lot of his letters is he begins by expressing his thankfulness to God for the radical transformation that's happening in the lives of of the people he's writing to. So he's drawing attention to how God transformed their lives. They have faith, hope, and love in their hearts, and that has given expression in various work and labor and steadfastness. And so who does Paul thank for this? He doesn't say, thank you for doing all those things. Thank you for your commitment to Christ. Thank you for transforming yourselves by the gospel. Thank you for your good work. Now, he could do that, and it would be fair in one sense. Uh, It's right to thank people for their work, but Paul doesn't do that. He thanks God. And let's just think about this. I think we can so quickly kind of move past this thinking that this is kind of just a general, oh, I'm so grateful. I have grateful feelings when I think of what's happened in your life. But Paul, this is a theological statement. He thanks God for the transformation that he sees in people's lives. He views God as ultimately responsible for this transformation. He sees faith, hope, and love in people's lives. And when he sees that, he says, God, thank you. Thank you for doing that. So when you look around and you see faith, hope, and love in people's lives, your friends' lives, your family members' lives, when you see that in your, if you're praying for your children, you see that happen in your children's lives, you pray for your parents. If you see it, Don't just have grateful thoughts. Say, God, you did that. Thank you. So Paul's thanking God. So Paul sees that people are growing as disciples, and he says, I thank God for this. Here's the second way that we see that worship ultimately comes from God and starts with him, and that he's the one who creates worshipers. The second way we see this is because God is the one who chooses people to become disciples and worshipers. Notice verse 4. God or Paul thanks God for their transformed lives, And then in verse 4, he says this, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So Paul is saying, the reason I thank God for you, if you trace the logic here, the reason I'm thankful to God for you is because it's so clear that he has chosen you. He's clearly loved you and chosen you to become his disciples. And we're seeing the result of that. And so we thank him. So theologically, we call this the doctrine of election. To elect means to choose. So God is the one who ultimately chooses who will become a disciple of Jesus. Now, I know that many of us struggle with this doctrine, um, especially for a while before we feel like we can fully embrace it. I struggled with it for a number of years, but I've come to see that this is not a harsh doctrine, but ultimately a warm one. And one of the reasons is right here, because the doctrine of election is ultimately about the doctrine of God's love. Do you see how Paul brings both together here? Look at verse 4 again. We know, for we know, brothers and sisters, 
loved by God that He has chosen you. So we should never separate the Bible's teaching on election from the Bible's teaching on God's love. They belong together. This is about how God sets His heart in love on certain people. So this is a special kind of love. God has a certain kind of love. The Father has a certain kind of love for His Son. He has a certain kind of love for all people. He has a certain kind of love for creation. But He also has this special kind of love for those whom He chooses for salvation. And so this is ultimately comforting because it means that if you're a Christian, it's not because you're better than others. It's not because you were more spiritually sensitive than others of your own doing. It's not because you're smarter than others and you can kind of sort through various religious claims. It's not because you decided to be more spiritually sensitive than others. It's because God set his heart in love on you before you even existed, before the foundation of the world. He loved you. He chose you. And he didn't choose you for anything about you. It's not because you're better or smarter. It's not because he looked through the corridor of time and saw that you would be the kind of person who would respond to the gospel of your own doing. No, he chose you because he loved you. So Paul sees that they're disciples and worshipers of God. And so he says, I thank God for that because it's clear that he chose you. We see this almost exact same thing in the next letter. If you want to just turn a couple pages to 2 Thessalonians verse two, or chapter 2, verse 13, you see the same combination of his thankfulness to God because God loves and chose people, and he sees the transformation. So 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved. So Paul just sees what happened in this church, and he said, we just should always thank God for you. You are loved by God, and he chose you to be saved. And because he did it, it would be wrong for us not to thank God constantly for this miraculous work. So this is why we begin our purpose statement as a church, that we exist to glorify God. This is what Paul's doing here. He is glorifying God, praising God, drawing attention to God for all that he's done. Because God is powerful to save, and he has a heart that is eager to do it. So that's what Paul's doing here. And so to whatever degree that we see growth in our own lives or other people's lives as disciples, let's glorify God for it. Let's thank God for it. Let's never tire of even just praying, God, thank you for saving this person. Um, Often, you know, when we gather as elders and we pray for you all uh, most Monday evenings, um, from time to time, I just stop and realize, Lord, thank you for saving each one of us. Where would each of us be? (laughs) But you saved us. And thinking of that for all of you and other leaders in our church, thank you for saving us. Where would each of us be if the Lord didn't do it? So let's never grow tired of the miracle of salvation in God's Um, grace to us. And let's help others see it, by the way. Paul is encouraging them by drawing attention to God's work in their lives. I know that some of you can get so discouraged because you don't see the work of God in your life. And so um, others of you, you actually have a role in that person's life to encourage them, to say, you may not see it, but I do. Now, you don't make things up. Of course, if there isn't evidence, then there's, there's a, a need there for God to work. 
Um, but if, if it's there, then you can encourage them and say, you may not see it, but I do. And it is right to thank God for this. It's right to see the Spirit's work in our life. It's right to draw attention to that. When we become Christians, we don't just stay where we were. The Lord transforms us. And so we can encourage each other by saying, here's how I've seen the Lord transform your life. And I'm praising Him for it, right? No credit to you, ultimately, um, but the Lord. So second question is this. That's where it comes from. Now, second question, how does worship happen? Verse 5. So it comes from God, but how does it actually happen? It looks like something. And that's what we see in verse 5. So worship comes from God because he's the one who chooses and transforms us. But how does he do it? How does it actually happen? And that's the reality we see in verse 5. So let's follow Paul's logic from verse 4 and 5 here. So Paul says in verse 4 that he knows God chose them. You see that? He said, we know that God chose you. How would anyone know that? How could anyone know that God chose someone else for salvation? I mean, doesn't that sound kind of arrogant? Like, you know, is he peering into the eternal decrees of God? And he says, well, I I have this special insight into God's knowledge. So how would you know? Well, verse 5 is actually the answer. Because Paul sees the evidence of God's choice in their lives. Because God has done what only he can do. He's radically transformed them. So he explains how it happened in verse 5. So he says this, right? I know God's chose you. Why? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul is thinking back to what happened when he first came to the city of Thessalonica. You can read about it in the book of Acts. He enters into the city like he did in so many others, and he gathered people together, and he started talking about Jesus. He shared the message of the gospel, the word here, the message of Jesus. He shared that Jesus was the fulfillment of the story of Israel in the Old Testament scriptures. He said that Jesus came and he lived a perfect and sinless life, the life that no one else has lived. We've all sinned. Jesus alone lived this perfect life. And then he explained how Jesus died on the cross. He was crucified, rejected. Yet he wasn't dying for his own sins because he didn't have any. He was dying for our sins. It was actually his plan and the Father's plan that he would give his life as a sacrifice to take hell for us on the cross so that we don't have to go there. And then God, the Father, rose Jesus from the dead. And now he is the resurrected king of all creation. And all are invited to come to him as the Lord and king and to receive forgiveness and grace and become part of his kingdom. So Paul gave some aspect of this message, some version of this message, as he did in various ways. And Paul delivered it. And he, I mean, essentially, what he's saying here is, if God didn't show up, that would have just been the word coming to them. Paul would have stood there, he would have said it, and people would have said either, uh, let's keep walking, or they would have said, let's get rid of this guy, um, send him out of town. But he said that God showed up right? God, the word came not only, or the gospel came not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying, I spoke the words, the word came, and then I saw something happen that I couldn't do and that these people couldn't do. I saw power come. I saw the Holy Spirit 
do something, bring full conviction and convincing of the truth of this message in front of me. And that's why he's thanking God, right? Because he saw what only God can do. Only God can do that. And so he's celebrating that. And so we can preach the gospel, only God can change hearts. Only God. So we see these two things constantly together, God's word and God's spirit. The gospel word and the Holy Spirit, they always come together for the making of disciples. You can see this happen over and over and over again in the book of Acts as Paul and others bring the message places. It's the word and then the spirit decides to act. They're always together. And so it's never God's word alone, never just God's spirit. It's always both of them working together. And when the spirit uses the word, powerful things happen. Have you seen what happens when you put Mentos into Coke? If not, YouTube it, you're welcome. Um, It's explosive, right? Neither of them alone can do that. But when you mix them together, this explosive dynamic happens. Um, And that's what we see happening here with God's word and prayer coming together. It has an explosive power in people's hearts. Transformation happens. Uh, Theological word for this is regeneration. God gives a new heart, and then transformation's begun. New desires. We become disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. Some of you may be interested in how exactly the church did grow and Christianity spread in the first century, historically. I mean, how is it that this message of a crucified and risen Jewish Messiah that many people thought was a false Messiah, how did that message take hold of the world and spread? As modern people, we can, tend to people, we can tend to think that people back then were just more inclined to believe that kind of thing, a death and resurrection. Uh, but that's actually not true. Most Jewish people at the time rejected this message. Most Greek Gentile people thought it was foolish. And so it's hard to understand how so many people believe this unless it was historically credible that Jesus rose from the dead and there were witnesses and spiritually, supernaturally powerful, the Spirit working. Okay, so this renewal that happens isn't just a one-time act. All of our growth as Christians continues on with the same dynamic of the Word and Spirit working. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. There's actually just one word I want us to see here. It's an incredible statement. He says, we also thank God constantly for this. So he's thanked God for this transformation that happens. Now he says, we also thank God constantly for this. So he's thanking God. So what has God done? He says this, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So that's thinking back to their conversion. God did this. God caused them to accept it as his word. But now listen to this, which is at work in you believers. So if, you're a, if you mark in your Bible, underline that word is, circle that word is. What he's saying is, I'm thankful that the word of God not only came to you with power to make you a disciple, but it is now present, ongoing. It is at work in you believers. That this dynamic of power through God's word and spirit is still working in you. So how does worship happen? Not just begin, but continue in the Christian life. Well, God produces it 
by His Word and Spirit. So if you ask the question, how do I help someone grow as a Christian? We should all be asking that. If you are a Christian, the question, how do I help someone else grow? How do I help people become Christians? How do I help people grow as Christians? How do I help my spouse or my children or my siblings or friends at school? How do I help people grow? How do I, how do I help the members of my small group grow? Well, here are two essential ingredients. I mean, if you're going to make a cake, you need to have the ingredients to do it, right? So if you want to make disciples, what are two essential ingredients? The Word, gospel word, and the Spirit. So you get the gospel in front of people, give people a Bible, read people the Bible, talk to people about Jesus, give them a book that's saturated with the Word, and then you pray, and you pray, and you pray that the Spirit would take that Word and work. Last question, what does worship look like? So Paul now describes the result of this encounter with the gospel and the Spirit. And in verses 9 and 10, he shows us what it looks like to become a disciple worshiper of the triune true God. And Paul says that when these people became Christians, it was so radical that it spread over uh, the whole region. Everyone heard what happened. We'll come back to this in a couple weeks. And when Paul describes what happened to them and the reputation that spread about this church, he uses worship language. So look at the end of verse 9. He says, here's what people found out. They heard how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, that's a summary of what it looks like to become a Christian. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, if you're not not yet following him, this is a picture of what it looks like. It's to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It's a shift of worship. They were worshiping idols. They turn away from that to worship the true and living God. That word serve here, to serve the living and true God, is worship language. Service is about, and worship is about devotion to someone or something. They were devoted to idols. Now they're devoted to God. So there's a profound insight about the human heart here. Everyone worships something, no matter what age you are children, adults, older, you worship something. Everyone worships something or someone. And so the question is really not, are you a worshiper? The question is, do you worship the true God or not? The question is really, what or whom do you worship, and how's that going for you? These people worshiped physical idols. They were false gods, but but even those first century physical idols that were strewn across the Greco-Roman world, they were representing some deeper idols in their lives that people served. We don't have physical idols commonly served today. Our idolatry is more sophisticated. We skip the physical idol part, and we just go for those deeper idolatrous drives. So your idol, if you want to know what it is, right, anyone, is what you serve above everything else. You were made to serve and be devoted to your God, your Creator. And what happens is we replace him with something else or someone else in life, and that becomes what we're devoted to, what we serve, what we orient our life around, what we most want and love and treasure instead of God. It's a God replacement, and that is therefore our idol. So some serve the idol of money. They don't bow down to dollar bills physically, but they 
bow their heart to it, and they orient their life toward it. The direction of their life is toward the accumulation of more. They find their deepest security when they have it. Now, when I say they, I do also mean us. Because remember, the, the life of a Christian is a continual growth in this and a turning. So this grips, this grips our hearts. So you may resonate with this. There'll be a continual turning of worship from idols to the true God. So if, if money is a temptation as an idol, you find your deepest security when you have it, and your greatest fear is losing it. And Paul says elsewhere that covetousness is idolatry. Jesus referred to the God of mammon, the God of money. Some serve the idol of power. If you serve the idol of power, you want control in your relationships above anything else. And you, you can tell when that's driving you and motivating you by noticing if there is a deep discomfort if other people call the shots around you. Uh, you need people to serve you, perhaps. If you need people to serve you, it's actually because you are serving the idol of power. Some serve the idol of comfort. This is my most strong idol that I have to fight. You get angry when people interrupt you. You're impatient with people who inconvenience you. Your God is peace and quiet. And so I found out that this was a strong God of my life when my house got less and less peaceful and quiet um, with more and more people. And I realized that my problem, really the problem wasn't the house, the problem is mainly with me um, and serving the idol of this kingdom of Drew's comfort. Some serve the idol of physical pleasure, slave to their appetites, food, alcohol, drugs, physical pleasure. You go to that when life is hard and you feel insecure or you feel helpless. That's the God you turn to for comfort and security and stability, an addiction toward that. And Paul says discipleship is about turning from these false gods to serve the one true God. Worship is about not worshiping these gods, but worshiping the true God. It's about dethroning these God substitutes and recognizing that God is our true king. It's about putting him in the rightful place in our life, recognizing his rightful place in our life. And it only happens when the word comes with the spirit and power. We can't do this on our own. We can't just stop worshiping other things. But when the word comes, the word of Jesus, the gospel of God's God the Father's great love for us through the Lord Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and resurrection, how he cares for us, how he welcomes us and forgives us and transforms us. That's what frees our heart when we say, he's better. He's my creator and he loves me and Jesus died for me. And Jesus is coming back. Notice he says, waiting for the son who will return. That's what loosens the grip of these idols. And so this worship then gets expressed in all of life because worship always affects all of life. No matter what you worship, it affects your life. If you worship money, then you're orienting your heart and your mind and your plans around pursuing more of that uh, or guarding it. If you want power, you're seeking that in your relationships. You're ordering your relationships, the way you treat people, the decisions you make at the workplace or in school. These are oriented to maintaining and increasing power. So it's the same thing goes for worshiping God. If we worship God, that's going to affect our life. It's going to change how we order things. It's going to change what we pursue, what we give our time to, what we give our heart to. If God is your true God, you'll seek to serve him through more, more and more of life. 
So being a disciple is about being a worshiper of the one true God. Now, in our last few minutes, I just want to think through a few of the connections we can make to everyday life as just a a beginning point for this week. Um, So here's a summary of worship from our text. Worship happens as we turn from idols to serve God by the power of His Word and Spirit. So worship is responsive. God's Word and Spirit come, and we respond to that by turning from idols to serve the true God. And so if we see the progression here, We start with God's love and choice, and then God sends His Word through people, and then it comes with power in the Spirit, and that produces such a change in people that they turn from their idols to serve the living and true God, and that gets expressed in all of life, every aspect of life, what you think, how you feel, what you do, how you talk, everything changes. So what are some of the ways that this changes? Um, when we move beyond, we don't move beyond the gospel and the word and spirit, we move deeper into it. So here's how we can cultivate this um, in our lives. So here's, let's just think about a couple things here to cultivate in our lives. First, let's think about what we're doing here on Sundays. What does it look like when we come here on Sundays? Well, first of all, it probably would imply that we're going to prioritize gathering because God calls us to. And I know gathering in whatever form we can right now We're going to prioritize being engaged with the local church and being here on Sundays, but even just think about what we're doing here. Since worship happens as a response to the Word and Spirit, then that's what we need, right? So we want to, intend, and we do, we intentionally saturate what we do together on Sundays with God's Word and with prayer, with God's Word and the Gospel, and reliance on God's Spirit to powerfully work. So when we pray at the very beginning of the service, that's not just a, you know, hey, it's good to pray since we're together. Often what we're including there in that prayer is, Lord, we need you for this time to even be meaningful. Uh, We need you to cultivate and kindle affection change in our hearts and worship in our hearts. And we often shape the service, um, what we call a gospel renewal flow. So this pattern of the gospel of adoring God and confessing sin and then being reminded of all of God's grace for us in Jesus, and then responding with thankfulness. We'll have these these gospel patterns in our service to draw our attention to it over and over again to be renewed in our worship. When we read God's Word, uh, we we all want to lean in and listen because we're hearing God's voice. So have that in mind. Anytime we have Scripture on the screen and we read it, we're hearing God's voice there. Whenever we pray, we're, all, we're inviting us all together to unite our hearts in dependence on God, to ask Him to do what only He can do. So when someone prays from up, up front, that's not a time for one person to pray for us, but it's actually for all of us to participate together in praying with that person who's leading us in prayer. So it takes work and, and effort, right, um, to even to do this. So when God speaks to us through His Word in the sermon, let's invite His Spirit to work. You can join me often as I'm moving from that chair to up here. I'm praying, fill me with your spirit. Please fill me with your spirit. Because we see throughout the book of Acts is the spirit and word, the word at work. God fills people with the spirit and they speak and powerful things happen. Um, if you want to join a team that prays weekly for the message in Sundays, you can um, just let me know, email me, and I'll add you to the list. If you're on that list and thinking maybe I've been bumped off the list, no, I've just not been sending emails as frequently, um, so sorry about that. I need to be more consistent with that, but if you want to, I'll send you a reminder of what we're going to be considering on Sundays, and please join me in prayer because we need God to work. 
And then when we sing, the words we sing are, it's, it's partly God's word coming to us as we remember the truth of the gospel and partly our response to those words on the spot as we sing with grateful hearts to him. So our whole service is designed to be participatory in worship. So I've said this before, always helpful to say again, right? Singing is not the only worship we do, right? Worship isn't singing. It includes it. Worship is to be all the whole service. Every aspect of what we do here should be an expression of worship together. So that's Sunday morning. What about everyday life? Well, if Sunday is corporate worship, then everyday life we could call continual worship. It doesn't mean we're worshiping continually, or well, we are, but it doesn't mean we're worshiping God continually. But what it means is that it can be continual. It is ideally to be continual. We take what we do on Sundays and we continue to worship God, not just in singing and prayer, but in the way that we treat, it, treat one another. So we worship God as we treasure Christ above all things, and then we respond in ways that are fitting. So here's a few ways. First of all, to kindle this worship, um, we need the fuel of worship, right? So if you look at your week and you're thinking, this feels so absent from me. I just feel like I go through so many days without this reality. Well, part of it may be that you don't have the fuel for it, which is the word and spirit, uh, the Mentos and Coke, right? To ignite this powerful explosion through the week. So I encourage you to find time every day to spend focused time hearing God's word and responding in prayer and dependence on the spirit, and then continue that through the day. Take a note card with you, memorize, meditate on God's word, continue to have an intake of God's word so that you can be responding with this kind of worship in all of life. And then as we connect it, uh, this worship to all of our life, it's turning from our idols to serve the living and true God. So learn to know your idols. Identify what do you tend to serve and love more than God? Is it money or power or comfort or physical pleasures? And how do those control you and drive you? Learn to identify those and then take those to the Lord in repentance. Turn from them and turn to the Lord uh, with fresh worship. And do this through all of life and then express this in all of life. So think about work as worship. Uh, your workplace, if you have one, is a primary place for you to express worship to God. To love Him more than money. To seek to honor Him in the way that you work with integrity, uh, to pursue loving God and others through your work rather than merely seeking more money and a promotion and accolades. And learning to even think through what you're doing isn't just a waste of time so you can get to something that you think is more important later, but thinking through what, how is it that what you do is an expression of serving others and serving God? And then delighting in that and thanking the Lord for the opportunity, asking the Lord to use what you're doing um, in your work to serve and bless others. School is an opportunity for worship. Schoolwork is worship when we do it in thankfulness to God, as we learn about the world that he's made. As you kids learn about math and even the order of the world and learn about the creation of the world and learn how he's designed things, we can respond in worship and then also learn skills to serve others with in the rest of life. Family life is a primary context for worship as we die to ourselves and serve one another in love. So we can go on and on. We'll stop here, uh, but continue on in conversation um, 
today and in small group and in other relationships and just talk about what does it look like to worship in your life? What do you want to, how do you want to see the Lord grow you as a worshiper in everyday life and us as a church? Well, let's thank God uh, for this uh, time together and then we'll sing. Our Father, we thank you for your grace to us and especially how it comes to us expressed through your word and the Spirit. As we ask, we are hopeful that you have been powerfully at work in this time together. And we pray that this transformation would be lasting through this week. Thank you for making us hear your word this morning. And we pray that you would continue to work this renewal in our lives. Thank you for Jesus and his work for us. Thank you for the spirit and his power. Amen.